everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards. I'm your host, Caleb Moore, and today we have Dr. Adam Hardwood, and he is a professor of theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's coming in because there's a subject that pastors get asked a lot, and you'll likely hear a different answer for whatever pastor you talk to. And I wanted to solidify this answer and... Uh, Dr. Hardwood's book was extremely helpful. The book that I will kind of be referencing a little bit in this conversation is one called The Spiritual Condition of Infants. And I love that you wrote a book that was so precise on this question. When people are thinking about what happens to a child when it dies, like I can't think of a clearer way to communicate that than through this book. And the answer might surprise people. So uh dr hardwood thank you for being on the show um you have a new book coming out correct that's correct um i i don't mean for this to be a plug your book section but if Abs it's no this is this is for yeah. pastors or leaders or students this is a systematic theology that is scheduled to be released on october 19th this is an early copy that i received and you see the title Christian Theology and then the subtitle Biblical, Historical and Systematic. So this book uh, attempts to uh, survey every major Christian doctrine and to do it in a way that is first biblical. What does the Bible teach about, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity? And then we'll talk about what has the church taught about the doctrine? And then what are some of the doctrinal questions that emerge after we survey the Bible and consider views taught in the church and uh, how do we formulate this in a way that's faithful to the scripture. And many times there are multiple perspectives on a doctrine. And so it's an attempt to sort out these are orthodox, faithful uh, Christian viewpoints, even when they differ at points. This, this is what is really important to me. The idea that there can be different viewpoints on one subject and both viewpoints can be orthodox, right? Like a church can agree to disagree on subjects without it being just absolutely the end of the world. And one thing I don't know about you. Do you think that we've done a good job of in churches teaching people about different views or do we tend to just put the one view that we have out front as though it's a settled issue? That's a good question. And I think it's it's a real challenge to do that. And I and I come as someone who not only is a professor, but I I served in churches full time for 12 years before teaching full time. So uh, I have some experience in the dynamic of teaching in the local church and preaching and pastoral sensitivity. And the challenge is, on the one hand, I think the people of God want to hear the word of the Lord is. This is what God's word teaches. And there are many issues on which pastors and teachers should be clear. Divinity of Christ, um, the need for salvation through faith in Jesus, the comfort um, and uh, um, work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. There are so many things on which we should be clear and uh, affirm without hesitation. However, there are other issues on which Christians historically have differed. There are different interpretations of Scripture. There are different viewpoints. Usually those are on second or third tier matters. Uh, they, 
they may divide Christian groups, but uh, they don't put one outside of orthodoxy, uh, historic Christian belief. Um, and so that that is a challenge um, because there are things on which we should be crystal clear. And then there, there are other issues on which we should say, hey, look, there are five different major viewpoints on, for example, how to read the book of Revelation and how to interpret it. And faithful Christians take different perspectives on how to interpret the book. And it's OK to hold a different view. And, and I would just add one more thing. One challenge is sometimes all of us can struggle with the difference between the word of God and my interpretation of the word of God. And, and mm. we should have utmost confidence that the Bible is God's word. And when we read God's word, we are reading God's words. However, there's a difference between God's word and my interpretation and explanation of God's word. And sometimes that explanation and interpretation is accurate and faithful. And other times, honestly, I, I just get things wrong. I'm fallible. And, and it's the case for all of us. And so confusing the difference between God's word and interpretation is another issue. We, I often, like in our church, we somebody becomes a member. We talk about closed-handed issues, and we kind of go through some of the things that you talked about. And then we stress really strongly, if it is an open-handed issue, then you can't be angry if somebody brings it up, right? Like if somebody questions your view on end times does not make them a heretic because you see churches split over open-handed issues. Now, end times is one, for the most part, that people will be fairly open-handed in. They might have their favorite and they're like, I really think it's this, but I understand why, especially like pastors, they'll be open-handed on that. But on the subject of this, do you find... Um, a lot of people consider this a closed-handed issue on original sin. Yeah, that's a good question. Initially, um, people can become very emotional when they hear a view that's different than their own, because if it's the first time they've heard it, they assume it's heretical or false teaching or doesn't align with the scripture and uh, the topic of original sin or the doctrine of original sin is is actually one that in the in the history of the church, there are multiple perspectives which respected Christian leaders have held and taught and defended from the scripture. And so there's never been a consensus on the uh, doctrine of original sin like there has been a consensus, for example, on the doctrine of the Trinity or the humanity and divinity of Christ. So to maybe catch people up, because we kind of know what we're talking about, but there's other ones that are like, doctrine of original sin, what are we even talking about? So when I was growing up in a Baptist church, the Calvinistic view was the only exposure I really had. You heard about Armenians, but it was kind of this weird group. And, and, and you're not an Armenian nor a Calvinist, uh, as far as I understand. But... The only view I heard is that everybody bears the guilt of Adam. And not only do you have to pay for your sin, but you would also have to pay for the sin of Adam. So nobody is innocent. There is no such thing as innocent. Everybody is dead in their transgressions. And I was fine with that. Like, it, okay, it made sense to me. But then my wife and I had gone through a, a miscarriage. And I had never thought too much about it because when somebody would come and they say, Pastor, what happens to a child when it dies? 
Well, I would give the comforting answer. We would look at King David losing a son and say, we don't know how it works, but um, it seems to say that he's going to go be with him. So you can trust that your baby's okay. But that didn't jive with, well, no, that baby, whether it committed no wrong or not, had the guilt of Adam on it. And then as I began to question this, I would talk to people and uh, Calvinists were giving awful answers. I'd say, what happens to a child when it dies? Maybe from an abortion. And one of the responses, somebody sat there right across from me and says, well, it depends on if the baby was elect or not. And for whatever reason, from what I knew of the character of God, that didn't seem right. And so you kind of went on this journey too. And, and maybe tell me about what sent you down this rabbit hole and maybe some of the conclusions that you came to. Certainly. Thank you. My background is that I was raised in Southern Baptist churches. My dad was in the military, which means we moved around frequently, but we were always in Southern Baptist churches. And uh, so I was familiar with the idea of the age of accountability or stage of moral accountability as an answer to that dilemma. Um, and that's basically the idea that if a person dies in infancy, God doesn't hold them accountable for their sin and welcomes them into heaven. And so that's the age or stage of moral accountability. That's the concept behind it. So I was familiar with that idea, sort of in the in the background of my mind as as I went through my my master's studies, the topic didn't come up. And as I worked on my dissertation at Southwestern Seminary in theology, I studied uh, in, in the area of biblical studies as well as historical studies, had a um, seminar in philosophy, just a, a wide range of issues that all undergird the topic of theology. And it was time to find a dissertation topic. And my supervisor said, what are you interested in? Which is a a great question when someone is searching for a topic and and I I was interested in this question of age of accountability because it seemed consistent um, to me and it seemed it was almost a biblical intuition that I held that that's the way God would treat infants however as I studied the topic I I noticed that a theologian whom I have great respect for and um, his systematic theology was my first systematic to ever read through and, and work through carefully. Wayne Grudem and his systematic. I found a tremendous agreement and great benefit from his work. But when I came to the section on the doctrine of sin, he explained inherited guilt. And this was jarring to me because I'd never run across the idea, not even in, in my master's studies. And uh, it wasn't part of my theological tradition. So I was intrigued by that, that issue. And when you finish reading his section, he's not only dealing with the fact that Adam's guilt is passed on to, to all people, but then he addresses the natural question, which which comes as uh, how does God treat those who die in infancy? And his answer was uh, basically, well, there are several ways we could understand how God might save children of believing parents, but there's no assurance of salvation for infants 
who die, whose parents are unbelievers. And that was even more shocking. So yeah. I, I found his explanation for infant salvation to be problematic, but it seemed like the trouble was rooted in his view of inherited guilt. So, so I realized I'd, I'd found an area worth studying. So, so that became my, my topic and my, the question I was investigating, forming it as a question is what is the spiritual condition of infants? So this respected Bible teacher was, was saying, well, everyone begins life guilty and under God's condemnation. And, and that didn't seem right to me, but I thought it's, it's not enough to simply say that doesn't seem right. What does the Bible teach? And so in my investigation, what I did was through reading uh, theologians and uh, Bible commentaries and Christian leaders who addressed the topics of infant salvation, infant baptism, original sin, or what is our connection to the first couple, I identified a, a collection of Bible passages which came up repeatedly. And I realized, okay, these are key passages for people who, who formulate ideas on infants and sin and salvation. So let me study these passages and ask the question of each one, what does this passage teach us, if anything, about the spiritual condition of infants? And again, I'm, dress, I'm addressing infants because we're not talking about adults and how God regards adults or even children, but we're talking about people who are so young that almost no one makes the argument that they're morally culpable. They know the difference between right and wrong and they do wrong anyway. We're talking about people who are human beings, yet they are so young, perhaps even in the womb, that although they, they are fully human, they bear God's image, there's also some relationship to Adam. There's some way that they should be understood as sinners, but are they guilty and under God's condemnation. So what is the spiritual condition of infants? And what I found was some passages that people referred to, uh, to make a case that people were guilty of Adam's sin, didn't, didn't teach that explicitly. There's actually uh, several different theological frameworks that can be built that make the case that were related to Adam and, and guilty of his sin. And um, most of those ideas began with a, a Christian thinker named Augustine, and he was more influential, influential than any person in Christian history on that particular doctrine. And although he had wonderful things to say on many other topics, his writings on the doc, his later writings on the doctrine of original sin, his commentaries on the book of Genesis and um, his writings on sin and baptism have several problematic ideas and they have plagued the church since then. Um, now let me back up and say that, that those, those who hold the view that we inherit Adam's guilt, uh, there are Christian confessions who teach that, uh, or which affirm that there are Christian leaders who affirm that and there are Bible commentaries who will identify certain passages and that will be their explanation. So it's an Orthodox position. It's a legitimate position. Uh, my own view so, is it's not the best explanation of the scripture. Is is one of the main verses that people go to on this subject, uh, like Romans five? Is that is that one of the main places? 
that is the key text for the discussion. There, there are others, but Romans 5 is an important one, and I'll just read the first verse so that um, people can remember the passage we're talking about. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the passage actually continues through verse 21, and there are many things to, to notice, and it's a notoriously difficult passage to explain. Uh, the commentaries, um, most commentators will acknowledge that this is very difficult. The syntax, the theological arguments uh, that he's making are, are complex and not always entirely clear. Um, but this is a passage some people will go to to say, see, we're, we're guilty of Adam's sin. And uh, one of the in first my, things, in, go ahead. In, in my Bible, and before I'd even started to kind of like study intensely on this, I had just underlined in that passage in Romans 5, every time he mentioned death. And so you can see all throughout that passage that it seemed like just from, from my reading, death was the consequence. Uh, and then I was taught later on, well, it's because of your sin nature that you were born with a sin nature. So everyone's a sinner from birth. Um, everyone needs, and, and everyone does need salvation, but everyone has a guilt, uh, a, a sin nature from the very beginning. And so when I just read through that, if you underline how often death is there, and then maybe underline how often you see sin, you're going to see like death is one of the major consequences. And so the way you view Romans 5, uh, or the people that might hold this position, is it true that your suggestion would be that that death is the consequence and we're all going to die, but we're not all responsible for Adam's sin? The view that I advocate for, um, I call inherited consequences. And inherited consequences is uh, what it sounds like. There are things that we inherit because of Adam's sin. And um, the consequences include, for example, mortality. Every person is able to die. Every, everyone who descended from Adam is, is able to die. Um, mortality. We don't live forever. And that is, I, I believe, uh, one of the, the consequences of Adam's sin. Another consequence is um, that we live in a, a sinful environment. We, we live in a creation that has been flawed and damaged by Adam's sin. Now, uh, those consequences that I mentioned so far, um, mortality, a fallen world, um, almost every Christian viewpoint is going to affirm that. So there's no innovation there. Um, the chat, the, the difference and the challenge in, in this view is, um, is that the, not, not only with Romans five, but with the totality of scripture, the argument is that people become guilty and fall under God's condemnation because of their own sin, not because of the sin of another person. So there are consequences for creation and for me as an individual because of Adam's sin. But guilt and condemnation before God is not one of them. Yeah. It, and, it would be almost, 
it would be almost as though um, a child grew up with a dad who had a gambling problem and went to the casino every day. That gambling problem is going to affect the child, but the child doesn't have a gambling problem. The child's not responsible for the actions of the father. Is that is that a fair summation? I think it. I think it is. I think it is. And and returning to uh, Romans five, um, in verse twelve, what's what's passed on by Adam? The text. When we look at the text, there's three specific things in verse twelve: hamartia, thanatos, and katakrima, sin, death, and condemnation. So. Uh, there, there are things that are introduced into God's good creation as a result of Adam's disobedience, sin and death and condemnation. So the challenge is interpreting and explaining and, and looking at other passages of Scripture to understand that. What does it mean that death is introduced? Does it mean what does it mean that condemnation is introduced? Does that mean that before I commit a sinful action, I'm under God's condemnation or does condemnation simply include the fact that I'm born into an environment where everyone is a sinner around me and, and I'll be a sinner and there are things about the environment that are fallen and I have a bent towards sin and, and on and on. And there's a fair yeah. amount of verses that seem to say that you will be judged for your specific sin, right? Like you, you find a lot of that, that you're going to be judged for your actions and not the sins of your ancestors, your sins of your uncle. Absolutely, and and I would I would suggest that the entire biblical narrative is about God holding people accountable for their own sin, and there's never a mention of people being held accountable or judged for Adam's sin. Mm -hmm. So when God's judgment comes in in the in the Old Testament. Um, People are judged for their own sinful thoughts and attitudes and actions. And yes, it's true that that innocent people or younger people can be swept up in that judgment. But God doesn't say in the scripture, oh, this flood is for Adam's sin. He says he, he judges that generation for their own sin. And of course, that's when God says he regrets that he made humans. Um, but he's judging people for their sinful thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors, not for uh, Adam's sin. So that kind of brings us back then to an age of accountability, that you're going to be responsible for your own sin. Um, when is it that you think then someone becomes aware enough that, I mean, I, I can't imagine there being a specific age because it's everybody's so different. But is there anything to look for in a child to say, I better be telling them the gospel a lot right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Millard Erickson uh, is a the Baptist theologian who, um, instead of using the, the phrase age of accountability, he says stage of accountability. And I think that's very helpful because it it removes the idea that there's a magical age for all children or for some children. Um, because if God deals with us as individuals and we mature mentally and physically and spiritually um, at, at different times and in different ways, 
then of course there are some people who who never mature mentally uh, th there may be mental impairments that result in a 60 year old person yeah. who has the mind of a three-year-old um, and God deals with each person as an individual, I think. And, um, uh, and what that would mean is that people become accountable for their, their sins. If I may, um, the Baptist faith and message, it's not a perfect document, but it's, it's the confession of faith of the Southern Baptist convention and, um, the Baptist faith and message on article three mentions what we inherit from from Adam. And there are two sentences. It says this. It says, through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity, that means every person that came uh, subsequently, his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and under condemnation. Now, this is this is the language that was revised in 1963, and it was retained in 2000. So since 1963, this has been the confessional statement of, of the largest Protestant uh, group in the country. Um, the statement doesn't indicate that we begin life under God's condemnation or that we inherit Adam's guilt. The statement is we inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin or there's a bent towards sin. And included is the idea that as soon as they are capable of moral action, which implies that there's a time earlier in life when a person is not capable of moral action. As soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and under condemnation, which implies that before their capability of moral action, they were not transgressors and they were not under condemnation. And this is consistent, I think, with the idea of the stage of moral accountability. In fact, Herschel Hobbes explain the difference between the 1925 edition, which is written differently, where we begin under condemnation and the change in 1963. And, and he mentioned age of accountability as something that was widely believed. Um, and so, so I, I give that as an example, not to say everyone should believe it, but to say that this is the confession of faith, uh, the statement of faith of the largest, again, uh, largest doesn't mean it's the best, but it means that many people believe this. Um, if you can go ahead and say Baptist are best. It's it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we yeah. all we all agree yeah. here. Yeah. We have many failings. I I saw a meme yesterday on social media that someone was joking that non-denominational simply means um, Baptists who don't want to declare. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know that that's the case, but uh, I'm um, I'm at a Baptist church. But one of the first things we did, it was First Baptist Catusa. We took off the Baptist. Um, but that just because we wanted to rebrand it Catusa first, this had been become known as the church that does funerals because everybody here was 80 years old. And so this mm. church is older than the state of Oklahoma wow. and goes back all the way to 1881. And there was down about to eight people, six to eight people on a Sunday. 
And they were pretty close to shutting the doors when we came in. Mm -hmm. But I must have grown up in the time because there has been a strong Calvinist reinsurgent into the Baptist denomination. Uh, even uh, maybe even stronger right now is the Reformed Baptist movement. And they tend to lean the opposite way, at least from my experience of what we're talking about. They tend to side a little bit more with Augustine. Is, is that a fair statement to make? It's fair to say generally that's the case. Um, typically, that's because there is a theological structure in place that assumes inherited guilt mm -hmm. and connects that with the gospel. However, there are Bible expositors who are more Calvinistic, and when they simply explain the scripture and they're not trying to defend a theological structure, if that makes sense, when they're simply trying to explain the scripture, uh, they don't read Adam's guilt into inherited uh, consequences or, or original sin. I'll give you one example. Uh, James Hamilton um, uh, is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, excellent Bible expositor, and um, he wrote an article called Original Sin in Biblical Theology. And uh, when he when he attempts to summarize that doctrine, original sin in the Bible, he he talks about um, the entrance of sin and the impact. And he writes, uh, quote, Adam's transgression introduced sin into the world. And by showing that no one who descends from Adam has escaped the corruption of evil choices, Moses teaches his audience that Adam's sin results in all humanity having a sinward disposition. Amen. I mean, that, that's exactly, yeah. I think, what, what's happening in the scripture. And so my encouragement to people who want to investigate the doctrine of original sin or what is our connection to Adam or how is it that a person is regarded as a sinner and when, uh, I would just point them back to the scripture and say, what does the scripture say about our relationship to Adam? What does the scripture say about when a person is a sinner and why they're judged by God, uh, and when and why they're judged by God as, uh, as sinners and under condemnation. And, and I, I think that would be the right way to pursue the question. Absolutely. You know, I, I had heard something, I can't remember what book I was reading, um, just lately and this subject kind of popped up on it and it was talking about age of accountability and, um, one of the things that suggested was that there was a point where Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they were shamed. He says, have you ever seen a three-year-old? Now I have three boys. One of them's three. I'm constantly just trying to put pants on him. I'm like, you just run around. We can't post any of the pictures from our house because all my kids are in their underwear, right? And there's no shame. And he said, the moment that a kid becomes self-aware and ashamed of themselves in that way, that might be a hint that they have reached a moment of accountability. Have you, have you heard that before? Yes. And I, I think, I think there's something similar that I, you may, you may have picked that up. I might've read it. <laughs> I might've read it from your book. Yeah. Uh, and there's a section titled, what is the knowledge of good and evil? And, and what I do is, 
is pick up that phrase as it occurs in, in Genesis 2 and 3, as you described, and then also in Deuteronomy 139. And, and then at that, at that point with the nakedness, I'm, I'm speculating, but it seems like there is earlier in, in life, in human development, humans are naked and unashamed, right? But at some point in, in the maturity process, we realize, oh, we shouldn't walk around naked. And so we, we cover ourselves and we realize that's, a, that's appropriate. And there is, there is a proper sense of, of shame when there's nakedness. There's a change in our perspective, our understanding. And it seems like there's something similar described because remember that Adam and Eve, before their sin against God, they were naked and unashamed. And what did they do after their disobedience? tried to cover up their nakedness uh, and, they, and they were hiding from God. And so there might be a parallel there. The, the bigger point, I think, regarding uh, this knowledge of good and evil comes from the story. If I just take a moment to to remind your, your audience, Deuteronomy chapter one is the story of uh, the report from the 12 spies. God had promised his people a land, the promised land. But it was currently occupied by other people. And God said, well, I promised this land to you. And so there are 12 spies that are sent out into the land and um, 10 of them come back and say, yeah, we can't take this land. And two of them say, yes, we can. They believed God and and repeated God's promises. And uh, the people of God went, of course, with the majority report rather than the minority. And because of their failure to trust God, the people of God were judged and their judgment was that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And, and that was so that that unbelieving generation would die off. And that unbelieving generation would not enter the promised land, but the younger children would. Um, Deuteronomy 139, as for your little ones, you who said would become prey and your children who today, quote, have no knowledge of good or evil, uh, they shall go in there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. And so people who were there's that knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. People who were age 20 and younger were permitted to go into the land as well as the two spies that believed God. Those were the only people who were allowed to go into the land. So I'm not suggesting there's a, there's a stage or age of moral accountability that's 20 years old. I'm not. Mm -hmm. But what I am doing is I'm pointing back to the scripture, to that story, and I'm asking, what was the difference between the group that entered the land and uh, those that did not enter the land? What was what was the distinction? What did scripture identify with the exception of the two spies that believed God? Everyone else was judged. And the, the difference between those two groups is that the younger generation, and this statement is made about who didn't have the knowledge of good or evil, they would enter the land. So those two groups were treated differently and it was only on the basis of their age. And so I think that speaks to accountability 
Is there corporate accountability? Yes, because all of the older uh, Israelites were prohibited from entering the land. So there was corporate judgment. However, there was also lack of accountability for the younger generation. There might have been a 15-year-old who had his thoughts about it and, you know, but they were all judged in a similar way based on that criteria. So um, that's just something else interesting to consider. That's yeah. an example of a biblical case for um, moral accountability or a stage of accountability, because some some have said, well, there's no age of accountability in the Bible. Well, there's no phrase, but this may be an example yeah. of biblical support for the concept. I like how I'm like, hey, I read this really good thing the other day, and I see if you like it. And you're like, yeah, that's from my book. <laughs> so, I, I do the same so, thing. Let me. It's last, like, hey, do you like what you wrote? Do you do you like what you wrote? Yeah. Last uh, week, last week in class, this is my first semester where I'm using this as a textbook because it was just completed, and a student a student asked a question about someone's view, and it. It didn't sound right to me. And I said, I said, do you remember where you read that? And he said, your book. And so I did a quick search of the PDF in front of me and I realized, oh, yeah, I did write that. And I didn't remember <laughs> yeah, that being Martin Luther's view on that particular topic. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good thing you wrote it down then, because that's the only way I remember. Right. Well, this this conversation in this book has been really helpful for me. Uh, there's a lot of people that have this question and just to have this kind of alternative view out there, I, I think is beneficial. Um, is, is there a, uh, now I, I don't want to ask labels because everybody's always trying to like pigeonhole, you know, Calvin and Arminius and well, what are you? And I think sometimes I can be this, sometimes I'm this, sometimes I'm that I'm just going to go where the best evidence goes. And I just want to follow scripture. And you end up kind of a theological mutt, right? Like you're just a, a mixture of everything. And sometimes our desire to bring everything into some kind of uh, easy to understand uh, theological viewpoint might be what got us here in the first place. Going back to Augustine, having a, um, you know, influenced by Plato, that's his worldview. He can't totally get out of his worldview. I don't think any of us can. And so he speaks from a certain angle, and it just goes on throughout church tradition. Is there anything else Augustine screwed up for us that we need to figure out? There were some challenges that that he has created for the church, but again, I would I would want to reiterate that uh, most of what he wrote is very helpful, and I would recommend to your listeners Confessions, his spiritual autobiography, Confessions. It's um, it's basically a prayer to God. It's a, it's a book length prayer to God as he recalls events in his life and, and um, desires that he had and how God changed him. And so uh, I, uh, although I'm highly critical of Augustine at points, I would also hold him up as, as um, someone who is, is worth, definitely worth the time to, uh, to read. Well, that's that's going to be the way with all church fathers and all pastors, and they're not Jesus, so they're going to get some things right, and they're going to get some things wrong. We need to be careful not to make um, maybe celebrities not the right term, but 
we, we remind ourselves that these people held a scripture as their authority, and they would want us to test what they say against the word of God and not vice versa. Uh, Dr. Hardwood, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Thank you for taking the time being on. I've enjoyed it and uh, appreciate you very much. It was my pleasure, and I'll, I'll certainly uh, breathe a prayer for you and your uh, the family that you'll be ministering to that you mentioned um, before we began. Yeah. Um, if somebody wants to be able to get your books, is Amazon, or do you have your own website that they can go to? Uh, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't sell it on my own website. It is available on Amazon. It's not available in print until October 19th, but it's currently available digitally through Lexum Academic. So uh, this is the print arm of Logos Bible Software. So anyone who has a Logos Bible Software, if they were to look at my name or put in Christian theology, it's available for purchase there. And so my, my prayer is that it's a helpful resource. Great. I look forward to getting it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Caleb.